You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In the few months that Elon Musk has been at the helm of Twitter, there's been chaos at the social media platform. His laying off more than half of Twitter's workforce, quickly issuing rules and policies that have often led to lightning-fast reversals soon after being made public, suspending people from the platform for questionable reasons tweeting misinformation, posting tasteless jokes, and scaring off advertisers with his antics. On Tuesday, Musk announced plans to find someone else to run the company after his own Twitter poll showed almost 58% of voters wanted him to step down. My guest is Eric Talley, professor at Columbia Law School. Musk plans to resign as CEO as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. Who would be foolish enough to take the job when they'll be CEO in name only? It's an interesting job advertisement, to be sure. I'm not really sure that uh, I think we have the one person who is foolish enough to take the job, and that's Elon Musk. But it makes it even harder when he has said, yes, I'm, I'm going to find a CEO, but I'm still going to be in charge of a subsidiary part of Twitter. So how does that CEO even operate when your controlling shareholder is also running one of your divisions? Can the CEO discipline Mr. Musk for failure to perform? It's a very, very precarious situation. So, you know, managing Twitter is already a pretty big ask. Managing it when, you know, you are the boss to the person who is your boss is going to be an even bigger lift. So, you know, I'm not really sure he's going to find a lot of takers or to the extent that he does find takers, they are largely going to be sort of lieutenants to him in any respect. And that, quite frankly, doesn't help with some of the other challenges that Mr. Musk is facing, particularly from his shareholders and investors at other companies. And notably, I'll note Tesla here, you know, they've become much more audibly uppity about, you know, his travails over at Twitter uh, and whether that that entire enterprise is not only distracting him, but may also be, uh, you know, sort of contrary to the better interests of Tesla in terms of developing its markets and making sure its products are reliable and coming off the, the production line, you know, heading into a very, very challenging period of time for Tesla. Shareholders are agitated after a 61% drop in the company's value this year. And some have urged the board to replace Musk. But is that board ever going to do anything like that? 
possibly. It would be uh, quite a challenge to do so, given what a central role he has and continues to play at Tesla. It's important to realize that, that Mr. Musk, compared to Twitter, Mr. Musk is only about a 20% shareholder at Tesla, and that's declining you know, every time I pick up the newspaper. So he's you know, selling off more and more shares of Tesla. So it's not um, completely out of the out of the realm of possibility that he might end up being moved out as the CEO of Tesla. But you know, it's not really clear whose interest ultimately that serves. If the alternative is to really find someone to take over Twitter and for him to sort of concentrate in you know a much more deliberative way on what's happening over at at Tesla. That's sort of where he his bread and butter and his power alley is anyway. And social media has always you know, seemed to be a bit of a sideline for him. So, you know, in many respects, if, if one were sort of thinking, you know, Mr. Musk needs to be put to his highest and best use, and he has to be thinking this as well, you got to figure it is over at Tesla and not at Twitter. But it's not clear, at least at this stage, that's the way that things are going to evolve over time. He's, you know, put himself into kind of an, an odd situation where he's made a, a gigantic undiversified bet in Twitter's future success, it's going to be you know quite a slog to see how that plays out. He may not be able to help himself, but to you know attend to micromanaging things over at Twitter simply because of the large stake that he has wrapped up in it. Uh, contrary, when you think about Tesla, yeah, Tesla's lost a lot of market value. Uh, it's lost it in part because of the crowded space that uh, electric vehicles ha- are increasingly becoming. Tesla is no longer the only player in this area. Now, some of the big traditional automakers are coming in in both feet into the pool. And that's just going to create a, a, a much more challenging environment, not to mention the macroeconomic environment in which car makers all find themselves. And so uh, this is going to you know, be a trajectory of, of Tesla and how to steward it through that coming trajectory is, is going to be a big challenge to whoever is at the helm of Tesla. And it sort of makes sense from the Tesla shareholders perspective that they don't want someone that is, you know, kind of encumbered with various types of, of distractions that may be, you know, independent or possibly antagonistic to the best interests of Tesla. And, you know, that's another issue that I think is a hard one to figure out here. You know, Mr. Musk's public presence over Twitter and his, you know, continued inability to, you know, to muzzle his own tweets have also, you know, taken a turn in a fairly political direction in the last month and a half. You know, and he has he sort of allied himself much more with sort of a conservative ends of the political spectrum. That's not necessarily consistent with how Tesla is going to be in a good position to further its market share. You know, the, generally the folks that buy electric cars are not the cat diesel power baseball hat wearing truck, right? They tend to be, you know, the folks who are, you know, kind of worried about carbon footprint and global warming and they want to save the planet. And that crew tends to be disproportionately drawn from the more sort of centrist to to progressive uh, wings of of the United States, at least as present. So by taking what seems to be kind of an antagonistic uh, position over Twitter, there's lots of reasons to believe that Mr. Musk has actually, you know, not only uh, gotten distracted, but he may even have cannibalized some of the best sources of loyal customers over at Tesla. Speaking of the latest controversy, because it seems like there is one controversy after another, he claims that he's a free speech absolutist. And yet there have been 
instances where he suspends the accounts of journalists and others where it seems like the reason is they've said something critical about him. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, right? But what's the effect? Well, I guess in fairness to Mr. Musk, when he proclaimed himself to be a free speech absolutist, he didn't put an important modifier on that, which is who's free speech. And <laughs> evidently, he's an absolutist about his own free speech. But when it comes to other people's speech, maybe a little bit less of an absolutist position. I think this is an issue that has, has long worried people that, you know, on some level, once you get deep into the weeds, you know, part of the hard challenge that is in front of anyone who's doing some type of content moderation on platforms like this is how do you do it in a completely viewpoint neutral way? It's a big challenge and it's something that probably needs to draw on a lot of different inputs. Mr. Musk has maybe, you know, by necessity decided that the inputs that he's going to draw on are his own intuitions. And therefore, you know, um, many things that we never realized were dangerous forms of doxing turn out to, to be doxing from his perspective, you know, reporting news about Mr. Musk, um, criticizing Mr. Musk. You know, th those are the, the types of things, at least if you've got a large following on Twitter or, you know, in the, in the public press, that may be something that, that he you know either genuinely feels threatened by and feels is dangerous or just sort of doesn't want to give it a public airing on the platform that he owns and has decided in a somewhat impetuous and a little bit vindictive way to pull the critics off of the platform. It's hard to imagine how that then sort of computes into a free speech absolutist position. I think he abandoned that long ago. And Twitter still, you know, has a chance to be what he or whoever uh, is uh, controlling it and maybe even owning it makes of it. But he is not um, thus far in his track record stewarding uh, Twitter. He has not acted in a way that seems consistent with some of his own proclamations earlier on about how much he values the freedom of expression in the marketplace of ideas. There's some backlash from lawmakers in the EU. A vice president of the European Commission said the arbitrary suspension of journalists violated the EU's Digital Services Act and its Media Freedom Act. There's backlash from lawmakers in the EU. The vice president of the European Commission said his moves violated the EU's Digital Service Act and its Media Freedom Act. So where he might be safe in the U.S., he might have problems in the EU. It's a big issue for any global company because you are not necessarily, you know, going to be fine simply by, you know, abiding by the jurisdictional rules and regulations of even the largest jurisdiction that you're operating in. Once you're operating across jurisdictions, you have essentially many masters to figure out and, and attend to. And with the EU, they've long had a much more aggressive position on social media content, the right to be forgotten, and so forth. And so it's just not surprising that the EU regulators are going to be a tougher sell than U.S. regulators. You know, on that score as well, it's probably worth noting that Senator Warren herself has come out of the woodwork to kick the tires not on Musk's stewardship of Twitter, but on whether he's breaching his duties to Tesla and Tesla shareholders. Now, that's kind of an, an interesting position for Senator Warren, who's you know much more of a kind of a, a stakeholder identified commentator to be sort of, you know, worried about Tesla shareholders. But on some level, 
it speaks to the complexity of the situation that he's in. You know, when you are so heavily connected to two companies that are not in the same in- industry, that may be in some cases working across purposes, it's going to be hard to stay out of regulators' sights. And so the European regulators uh, seem to have a lot more to say about decisions made and not made at Twitter. And maybe that, that U.S. regulators, by the same token, are, are going to increasingly come down harder on how Mr. Musk is affecting the, the, the running and the outcomes at Tesla. Well, the FTC has apparently expanded its investigation into security concerns at Twitter. This was a, an investigation and a consent decree that preexisted his, uh, his purchase of the company. And uh, and Twitter, you know, very much, you know, was was under ongoing obligations and is under ongoing obligations to comply with that consent decree. And and the FTC has authority and in many ways a duty to ensure that that compliance is ongoing. One of the first moves that Mr. Musk made once he took control of Twitter in late October was to lay off a you know a substantial portion of the staff, many of whom were responsible for ensuring that compliance was unfolding in a reasonable way with this FTC consent decree. So, you know, there again, it's in a, uh, it's another situation where it's proven quite difficult for Mr. Musk to make managerial moves, which he, you know, seems to have a, a proclivity to make by shooting from the hip and uh, not to arouse lawmakers and regulators' uh, suspicions and, and criticisms. And, I, you know, I wouldn't expect this to abate anytime soon. Uh, you know, the FTC has, is extremely active these days in a bunch of different realms. And, you know, in many respects, Mr. Musk has, has kind of made their job a little easier. Aren't some of his more controversial actions protected to a large degree because Twitter is a private company now? Not necessarily. When a company is a private company, that means that one area of law, securities law, dealing with the rights of public shareholders, is at least in part not going to apply. But that doesn't mean that you get a hall pass on every other regulatory constraint that faces companies. And those include content restrictions. Those also include employment restrictions. And so when, when you think about the various lenses that, that Mr. Musk finds himself under from regulators, they tend, at least with respect to what he's doing at Twitter, they tend not to be securities regulators as much as former employees or, you know, FTC regulators that are really about not protecting shareholders, but protecting users and customers. Simply being a privately held company does not get you out of the jurisdictional scope of the FTC or any other regulator whose purpose is not to regulate your relationship with your public shareholders. So yes, the SEC doesn't play as large of a role here, but just about every other regulator in the United States and Europe is going to continue to play a role just like they did before Twitter went private. Instead of asking you what he did wrong, I want to ask you, what do you think he has done right since he owned Twitter? Well, a couple things that I think are probably worth noting. First of all, it was clear that once he took hold of Twitter, he was taking hold of a company whose historical revenue patterns simply did not match up with what was going to be required to service the debt. And so, you know, some people criticize Mr. Musk. And I'm, hey, look, I'm, I've been one of them for, you know, in some respects taking, you know, fairly extreme and, and, you know, sort of bold and quite risky 
tactics when he was making decisions and then, you know, sometimes rolling them back. On some level, I don't think you can really avoid that simply because, you know, a company that really needs to pivot um, may have to pivot using, you know, a, a relatively bold and not fully tried out strategy. So I don't really fault Mr. Musk necessarily for the, you know, idea that he's trying on a whole bunch of new approaches and policies that haven't been tried before. I do fault him a little bit for not vetting them a little bit more. They seem to be kind of almost management by fever dream rather than um, even having a, a group of people to sort of bounce these ideas off, even if it's in a relatively short order. But it doesn't surprise me that anyone who's, you know, you know, basically trying to keep a company afloat that's got a fairly significant debt load isn't going to be, you know, uh, thinking about different, possibly quite major strategy changes that they may undertake. Uh, you know, there's probably some back room um, jockeying right now going on that we're not aware of, but I would not be surprised at all if Mr. Musk isn't uh, negotiating with some of the banks that holds at least certain parts of the debt that is going to have to start paying off interest in the coming months. That has been a particularly difficult thing for the banks to sell on to outside investors. So a lot of those banks have just kept that debt on their own books. And, and usually the way this works is they try to find a syndicate of investors who are willing to buy the debt from them. And there don't seem to be too many takers, at least uh, anywhere close to you know 100 cents on the dollar in terms of those obligations. That actually in some ways may create an opportunity for Mr. Musk to approach the banks and say, well, why don't you let me personally buy back this debt? But I'm not going to buy it back at 100 cents on the dollar either. But I'll give you, a, you know, a price that's competitive, you know, relative to what you get from someone else. And there's almost a sense in which, if that is what's happening, then uh, some of the behavior that Mr. Musk is engaged in right now, that I, I think if I were a, a bank that had lent money to, to Twitter, it'd make me very, very nervous. Well, that also might make my price come down when I when I am bargaining with him to you know try to figure out how much I'm willing to basically sell back that debt to him. You know, would it be sixty cents on the dollar, fifty eight cents on the dollar? So there may well be a few chapters yet that we have to um, have to see. The other thing that I think is probably worth noting is that, notwithstanding the fact that. Twitter has, you know, it's, it's clearly still the most dominant platform out there. And, you know, even as, as Mr. Musk has kind of engaged in, you know, what seems to be pretty erratic behavior, a lot of people have claimed quite publicly they're leaving Twitter. And, and you know, you sort of see him wander back a little bit later on because it's still one of the more lively platforms out there. And I think, you know, one of the things that he is trying to do is some of these other competitors that have emerged in the last few years for more conservative uh, posters are also, you know, not necessarily having a feeding frenzy of success, the parlors and the truth socials. I think he, you know, is trying to move those users back onto Twitter. And I think there's some evidence that he's been successful in doing that. So there is a sense in which the size of the network on Twitter has actually grown a little bit. Their advertising revenues haven't, haven't reflected that. They haven't been very successful at monetizing that growth. But at least they have sort of maintained, if not slightly shored up, 
their position as a you know kind of a central hub of uh, social networking. It remains to be seen whether that can be monetized in any successful way. A lot of advertisers have gotten nervous about that simply because they're now quite worried that their own advertisements are going to be put up next to you know content that would have been axed with the uh, prior content moderation policies. But now it's sort of left out there and can be fairly volatile content. So there may still be a lot more squeamishness by advertisers. But at the very least, I, I think they know that they are, you know, seeing a user base that, that appears to remain robust. Mr. Musk's own notoriety might well have played partly a role in that as well, uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that, um, you know, he, he seems to be behaving in a really erratic way. There are a lot of people that still like to tweet about one main topic, which is Mr. Musk. And to that point about content that advertisers may not want their advertisements next to, the New York Times analyzed tweets from more than a 1,000 users whose accounts were recently reinstated. And many of the users are posting about topics that got them barred in the first place. COVID skepticism, election denialism, and QAnon. So is that going to hurt the platform? It may well hurt the platform if the, if the key goal here is to try to monetize the user base at Twitter. Uh, you know, advertisers have long been the main source of revenue there. And to the extent that they are going to continue to be the main source of revenue there, I think you have to, you know, put yourself in the shoes of an advertiser who is, uh, who is, you know, understandably quite squeamish about whether somehow their product is being linked to salacious content that they had no idea it would be linked to. And the odds are, you know, somewhat greater uh, once those posters are back on Twitter. Now, they have their own following, so possibly for some advertisers, uh, that's a plus. But the numbers that I've seen coming out of Twitter, the ones that have leaked out, sort of suggest that advertisers are quite nervous about this move. And so if advertisers are going to you know, sit on the sidelines because of the you know, relaxation of at least this type of content moderation, now, how do they make up for this in other ways? And, you know, the, you know, Twitter itself is, you know, now trying to figure out, you know, how to slice, dice, and julienne every version of a verified user that you can pay for that um, is within the realm of imagination. Uh, you know, how much that captures people's imaginations, I think, remains to be seen. I think there are a lot of folks for whom uh, the the idea of, um, you know, paying for a blue check or a green check or a gray check or whatever color the check is, is and never was the real reason to, you know, you know become a, you know, a verified user on Twitter and just not going to send the same message that it did before. So I have some, you know, I have some concerns that as Twitter loses a lot of advertising revenue, it's going to have a hard time making it up with other services. Now, it's going to be throwing a few haymakers to try to become kind of the central media hub of everything that everyone does, make it a marketplace, make it a chat tool, and, and so forth. And it's got some of that functionality now, uh, though it hasn't really sort of become dominant in a lot of those other areas. And it still remains to be seen whether that's going to happen. But in the absence of 
uh, being able to substantially amp up advertising dollars, that money's got to come from somewhere. And right now, I think you know what we are seeing, and you know, kind of on a weekly basis, is a you know somewhat of a careening set of strategies, attempting to figure out where he can get some traction to actually increase the revenue streams to the company. Thanks so much for being on the show, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Many people associate magic mushrooms with the psychedelic 60s, with hippies and rock stars following mystics on the fringes and experimenting. But it's a whole different story today, as psychedelic drugs are being accepted by many in the mainstream. How mainstream? The powerhouse lawyer in the Paramount series The Good Fight, played by Christine Baranski, went through a course of treatment with psilocybin in the last season. And what are your services, Dr. Betancourt? Is this like ketamine? PT-108. It's less powerful. You come in here twice a week. We offer the option of an IV, a capsule, or a spray. You lie down in the other room. You wear an eye mask. You listen to music of your choosing to focus internally. And you have a 90-minute experience. And what does that mean, experience? Well, some people call it a trip. Others a waking dream. Oregon became the first state to legalize psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, two years ago. And in November, voters in Colorado passed a similar ballot initiative. Decriminalization bills have been introduced in several states for consideration, while others are studying the drug for medical use. However, the use, sale, and possession of psilocybin in the United States is still illegal under federal law. Joining me is healthcare policy expert and attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardeman. What psychedelic drugs are being considered for legalization? Magic mushrooms, LSD, MDMA? Well, so there's like a kind of a sequence that we're in. The only uh, psychedelic drug that is currently a legally prescribable controlled substance is ketamine, which is why there's been such an explosion of ketamine clinics and ketamine has been so popular. But then I would say after ketamine, of the psychedelics, true like plant-based psychedelics, because ketamine is, is synthetic, um, you know, psilocybin, psilocybin is clearly out in front um, as the one that has the most research being done, the most pressure for decriminalization. And then behind it, I think 
you know, you have a whole series of things like um, uh, ayahuasca and ibogaine, other plant-based psychedelics. And I think it's sort of picking up the rear and probably the last to be decriminalized are going to be the, the synthetics like the DMTs and LSD. But I, I think we're heading towards decriminalization for all of it over the next uh, 10 plus years. I know that some veterans organizations even finance trips overseas to treat PTSD with psilocybin. How do these drugs work? I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a lawyer who works closely with them. I mean, they all have like intense, uh, you know, neurological experiences that give people it's almost an out-of-body feeling in different cases. And it's a whole series of physical experiences. Uh, people describe, you know, whole ranges of going from complete serenity of, of an ability to, uh, you know, to be outside their own bodies and be perceiving their surroundings and, and, and beyond in all kinds of intense ways. And people have very, very different uh, reactions to them, right? Sometimes incredibly transcendent, sometimes scary, which is why there's so much emphasis on these being a guided experience where people are, are sort of being watched to make sure that, that they don't get into a place of dissociation or where they could potentially hurt themselves. But there are still studies being done to determine how effective and safe they are and what they can be used to treat. I mean, for, for decades, the DEA basically blocked research, clinical research, and you had very, very few studies going on. There were a handful. We, I had clients 15 plus years ago that were doing studies on, you know, P- PTSD being treated with psilocybin on using uh, ecstasy, you know, MDMA uh, also. Likewise, a lot of studies with veterans. There was a small stream of studies that were getting approval from DEA. As you mentioned, there were a lot of people there's an underground movement of people taking these drugs in, uh, you know, in either in, in settings, secluded settings, privately, or going out of the country to do so in places where they are uh, legal or decriminalized. And so, yeah, so the research is definitely accelerating. And now we have mainstream major research institutions across the country who are, which are engaging in studies. And at least anecdotally from the progress that I'm hearing from uh, researchers who we are working with just uh, really unbelievable results with things like major depression, where there was a resistance to treatment through ordinary means and PTSD and a whole range of conditions where these really do appear to be a breakthrough for many people. In 2020, Oregon became the first state to legalize psilocybin on a protracted timeline, but the regulations for its distribution still haven't been worked out by state officials. And unlike cannabis, Psilocybin can't be used at home. It has to be administered at licensed service centers under the direction of trained facilitators. Is that the model that other states are going to use? Well, so right. So Colorado, it looks like it's going to be the second state and uh, to follow kind of an Oregon model. Right. So at least the, it's a very strange, to my, in my view, it's a very strange model that um, we're developing where, you know, we're sort of, as we did with cannabis, uh, we're having this experiment of state-by-state state different rules, and at least not home use for psilocybin, at least in these early states. Personally, I think it's a, a shame that we can't get uh, our federal agencies to move because I think that, you know, what we're doing is we're really sort of carving out a whole new pathway of how these drugs are going to be used when we have a very established system and all we really need to do is decriminalize them, give them a prescribable status, and allow 
you know, physicians to prescribe them appropriately and, and manage them carefully as we do all the other kinds of controlled substances where we think there's a risk of danger or abuse. Seems to me crazy, but at the moment, these drugs are not being addressed federally, so therefore doctors can't write prescriptions and you have states coming up with their own schemes. And while I think Oregon deserves credit for being creative, I think we have a tried and true way to let patients, you know, use medications in appropriate safe settings, including at home with physician supervision. Psilocybin is illegal at the federal level. Correct. Other than ketamine, all of the psychedelics are currently Schedule One under the Controlled Substances Act, which means that they are deemed legally to have no medicinal use and therefore are illegal, uh, and it is a crime to possess them, distribute them, and doctors can't have anything to do with them or they will lose, they'll risk losing their DEA uh, licenses, essentially their medical licenses, and worse, right, criminal risk. So then how does it work when, let's say, you go to Oregon, if it's illegal federally, but the state legalized it, I mean, how does that work? So, right, so what we're doing effectively, what Oregon is doing and what it looks like the other states are going to do, because we're getting no federal movement here, is to treat this, again, very much like they did cannabis and create a sourcing supply. Just as we had cannabis dispensaries, we're going to have these clinics that are going to be allowed to um, receive, you know, the plant-based psychedelics, starting with psilocybin, you know, on a regulated basis. And then there will be people who, again, not, not physicians or mental health professionals necessarily, but a whole new class of essentially state-licensed guides who will be trained in how to administer and manage and monitor people who are taking the, the psilocybin. So it's like it's going to be very much a repeat of, of cannabis, except the idea of like a lounge where people have to stay on site and ingest is, is kind of an additional wrinkle here. So, I mean, technically the DEA could arrest someone who has this even in a state where it's legal. It's true. In theory, the DEA could. We saw, by the way, you know, California was the first state to decriminalize cannabis in the 90s. And we saw that it took several years before the DEA stopped raiding cannabis dispensaries and clubs. But 2012, Department of Justice issued a memo called the Cole Memorandum. And again, this is only cannabis right now, but I'm predicting that it will be the identical story for psychedelics. The federal government has taken the position that it has better things to do with its resources. And as long as people are operating carefully within state legal frameworks, it will not interfere. And I think that rule has been successful. There was a question at the beginning of the Trump administration whether Attorney General Sessions at the time would disrupt it. And we saw very quickly that there was you know, no support on either side of the political aisle to go back to the old days of the DEA interfering with state law. And so I think it's pretty safe to say that as long as people are operating in states that decriminalize, this will be safe, you know, within the parameters that are set in that state. There's going to be a ban on interstate traffic, I think very parallel to cannabis, on a bunch of safety issues and trying to keep organized crime out of it. You know, it'll be safe for people to follow state laws as these states decriminalize. So California had an earlier bill it was opposed by law enforcement, including the California DA's Association, that said hallucinations can be dangerous to users and bystanders alike, and it's not clear that the benefit of legalizing these drugs outweighs the cost to the common welfare. Well, look, it's, it's no surprise um, that law enforcement is concerned about this. Candidly, I think when we look at the cannabis example uh, that's played out over the last 15 years, we, we have to, there's good reason to say that there are a lot of uh, dangerous secondary effects, right, including what it means for motorists, 
and like for people on the roads and the extent to which there's a risk that crime organizations can be part of this. And so I, I, I think it was, it's understandable. Personally, I'm, I'm a, an advocate for opening up more therapeutics that will uh, help more people, right? That we have serious mental health issues in this country, and this is an incredibly promising uh, therapy. But at the same time, I think law enforcement is rightly worried that it be done in the right way and in a safe way. I don't think that we should let those concerns stifle access, but we should be careful to like look for the lessons that we can learn from where things went awry. You know, and there's this, there's this, there's this underlying tension between a movement of people who are just trying to get uh, recreational use, which has one set of arguments to make about it, and medical use. And I think that if we aren't careful, we can almost um, make the medical uses more challenging because of problems that are associated with recreational use. I think it's totally understandable that law enforcement and other groups are going to be, you know, throwing up concerns and uh, urging uh, a go-slow approach. And Frankly, I think they've been a little bit more organized in the early political discussions than than the advocacy community for decriminalization. And uh, again, a lot of different stakeholders in this conversation, and uh, it's complicated. So I think we've had a few California efforts fail, uh, although it looks like the current one has promising level of traction and and does seem to be, at least for now, on a good footing to, uh, to enactment. Do you think the problem is the stigma associated with hallucinogenics, you know, Timothy Leary, the bad trips and and all that? Certainly, I think there's some of that, although I do think, you know, my my sense is that public attitudes and some of the stigma really shifted dramatically with regard to cannabis. And I, I think we're in a different era where it's not quite as where there's generally public support for more access. You know, I think at the same time, on a community level, people are worried about what going to look like, you know, safety issues in communities. And so I think a lot of the concerns are going to be a lot more practical to make sure that it rolls out in a way that um, that people can feel good about and, you know, that has a more, again, a much more of a, a healthcare therapeutic framework around it as opposed to just being, you know, another form of vice that, for example, parents have to worry about kids getting into. Yeah, I think that's where the real issues are going to be. Tell us about the California bill and where it stands now. At least in the last two legislative sessions, there's been uh, previous bills that have ran into opposition. But this one was reintroduced by a San Francisco state senator, Scott Wiener, in the late summer. And the idea, this one is, is focused on only plant-based hallucinogens. So that would be like psilocybin and, you know, uh, ibogaine. Uh, but it would basically, it would create a, a research institute to study them and also um, create a framework for for individuals to receive direct amounts of them from dispensaries. So it's, again, very, very similar, in my mind, to a cannabis model, um, hopefully with some lessons learned to be a little bit more specific than some of the early uh, directors in California. It's sort of uh, a little different than Oregon uh, in terms of dispensation to individuals. Anyway, so that's where we are right now. As far as marijuana, how long before you think it will become legal at the federal level? Uh, it's a dangerous question. I, <laughs> I've, uh, I've been asked to write white papers on this subject for years, and I've gotten it wrong so many times. I think the, the view that I hear most commonly is that we are probably in the next decade and likely within the next five years, we will have a critical mass of legislators on both sides of the aisle who will support a change in federal status for cannabis. So I do think that we will... It. The problem is 
that the politics are so messy in our existing political dysfunction. So, for example, when people thought that President Obama, uh, you know, after he was really stopped the DEA from raiding back in 2009, and that he might go further, you know, it became clear that as midterm elections approached, he needed to, you know, get some law and order support from law enforcement. And so that calculus came in. And I think, unfortunately, uh, it's too much of a political football to be certain. But I do think that we are likely five to 10 years away from a formal change, you know, based on the on the critical mass of states that have already uh, legalized it, and just just to, to clean up some of the messiness of state by state policies that allow for a lot of bad behavior to slip between the cracks. Any final thoughts on the road ahead for legalization of psychedelics? I think this is really exciting. I think that to anybody who's skeptical out there, I think there's the data is just really it's worth reading some of the literature about the breakthroughs that people are having. To me, you know, I, I think we've lived in an era when SSRI, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals like Prozac and Zoloft really were, uh, you know, 30 plus years ago were a, a game changer in um, creating new options for depression and other uh, mental health challenges. And I think that we are going to be living through the same kind of a, a wave. And so I would encourage people to think about this as really a new era. And we're, we're really in the very, very beginning, but we're going to look back in 30 years at a transformed landscape for options for people who are struggling with mental health issues thanks to psychedelics. Thanks so much, Harry. That's Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.